Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. All good things must come to an end. So here we are at the last Science on Saturdays in Livermore for 2008. And I think we probably all will agree that things are better in the bankhead. Don't you think so? And we are grateful to the lab for being a good neighbor and that they want to share with us the fun they have every day. We have learned a bit about earth science this, this, in this series. At our first meeting, we learned about geothermal as a resource, geo, hot, the hot rocks underneath our feet. Then we heard about the problems of extra CO2 in the atmosphere and Julio Friedman's scheme to force it back into the spaces within the Earth's crust. Ed Moses related the story of NIF, the National Ignition Facility, an alternative to the usual carbon dioxide-producing electrical generation methods. And finally, Steve Astelos blew everything out of the water or perhaps across the universe with his topic of the universe. Where does it start? Where does it stop? Is it moving? Are we moving? But now it's time to get into the messy parts, plants and animals. Today, Pamela Hollinger, a UC Davis-trained veterinarian, will talk about our food supply, the kind of food we get from large animals. She is a large animal veterinarian who's worked in South and Central America to develop a veterinary infrastructure there. She worked in Britain in 2001 to eradicate foot and mouth disease. Just a week ago, Pam was named to the Alameda County Women's Hall of Fame for 2008 in the science category. Joining her on the stage is Patty Carruthers, a 38-year veteran high school science teacher, now at Monta Vista in Danville. Patty has worked with the AAUW Girls on the Bay Project for Contra Costa County Clean Water Program and the curriculum in that program. She was also the 2006-07 Teacher of the Year in Contra Costa County. So we're in good hands this morning. And now, protecting the nation's livestock, corralling foreign diseases. Good morning, everyone. Thank you very much for taking some time out of your Saturday morning to come down here and join us at the Bankhead Theater. All right. So what we're going to do today is share some information with you about uh, veterinary medicine as a career some information about uh, diseases and how they spread and how to control the spread of diseases, both in people and in animals, as well as some information about what a veterinarian or a veterinary scientist might do at a national security lab. What we hope you come away with is, um, is information on, on all of these aspects, and in addition, maybe an understanding of how we can use computer models uh, in lieu of actual outbreaks to study the way disease spreads in, in populations and how we can best control that, and why we need more uh, accurate, rapid diagnostic tests to help us in the fight against foreign animal diseases. But before we get too far into the talk, we thought it might be fun to have a little pretest, just for fun, to see how much information you might already know about uh, some of these topics. So we have uh, three people over here that have graciously volunteered to help us out. Uh, closest to me is Eric in yellow. Want to wave to everyone, Eric? Let's have your hand for Eric. 
I'm Vanna. We have Cassidy in the center in red. Hand for Cassidy. And we have Josh over on the end in black. A big hand for Josh. All right, so we're going to give them a chance to see how much they know about diseases and disease spread. So they have some questions in front of them. And the first question is, what would you call a disease that's shared between animals and people? An orthogenic disease, a zoonotic disease, a scary disease, or a pathogenic disease? So they're going to go ahead and hold up their answers. We got, we got three Ds, and the answer is zoonotic disease. <laughs> so as we get a little bit farther in the talk today, we're going to learn a little bit more about zoonotic diseases and, and how many diseases the people and animals actually share. All right, let's try question number two. Question number two is, what would you call an inanimate object that could transmit a disease agent, be it a bacteria or a virus, from animal to animal, or for that matter, from person to person? So answer A is a contagion, B, fomite, C, pathogen, or D, vector. Let's see what our uh, volunteers have to think about that one. We got a fomite, we got a pathogen, and we have two pathogens. So two C's and a B. The answer is fomite. Excellent. So we have... All right. Oops. So moving on to the third question. Which of the following is not one of the modes of disease transmission? Animal or insect vectors... Direct contact with infected hosts, spread of disease through airborne uh, particles, bacteria or virus, or D, all of these are modes of potential disease transmission. Let's see what our volunteers have to say. We got a D, D, and Eric. It's unanimous, D, and everybody is correct. Excellent. Good job, you guys. All right, our fourth question has to do with preventing the spread of disease. So which of these is not used to prevent the cycle of contagion or the cycle of disease? A, good hygiene and hand washing. B, immunization of a host after a pathogen has attacked. C, immunizing the pathogen. Or D, treating an infected host. See what our volunteers have to think about that. Okay. All right, we got A, C, C, and C. It's unanimous, and everybody is correct again. Excellent. Good job, you guys. All right, we have one last question. This is a tough one. Um, what foreign animal disease has not been seen in the United States since 1929? This happens to be my favorite disease. Uh, A, brucellosis, B, mad cow disease, C, foot and mouth disease, or D, tuberculosis? We got brucellosis, brucellosis, and a mad cow disease, and the answer actually is foot and mouth disease. <laughs> so we're going to learn a little bit more about foot and mouth disease as we go through the talk as well.
So we'd like to have a very big round of applause for our volunteers. Okay, and we have prizes for the first place person. He can pick a slinky or a pig flashlight or a cow flashlight. <laughs> big choice. <laughs> I take both. <laughs> yeah. There you go. All right. <laughs> and give your mom a slinky too for letting us have you and your brother. There you go. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you guys very much right. for your help. You guys can go ahead and take that. Man right. after my own heart. So, so what I'd like to do now is uh, share with you some information about the diversity of careers in veterinary medicine. Um, certainly, people in the United States uh, care tremendously for their pets, and the pets and the livestock in this country get some of the best veterinary care in the world. I think probably that um, most people that think about uh, a veterinarian or the typical veterinarian think about someone that they might take their own pets to uh, when they need their vaccinations or should they get sick or injured. Uh, there are a lot of veterinarians in this country that provide excellent veterinary care um, to our companion animals. And those would be animals like our dogs or cats. And I don't know how many of you have ever had an animal that has had surgery and required um, an Elizabethan collar. Um, but this, the kitty cat over here on the right is wearing a, a, a special collar that prevents that cat from licking the wounds, which can cause problems with healing. We also have veterinarians that uh, devote themselves to taking care of our horses or equine practitioners. Uh, equine practitioners oftentimes uh, operate mobile clinics. It's much easier sometimes for a veterinarian to drive around from farm or ranch to farm or ranch um, or to boarding stable than it is for people to bring their horses in. So we're going to take a survey here, and we're going to see in our audience um, how many people are dog owners. Okay, majority. Um, how many are cat owners? Lots of cats. And how many folks are lucky horse owners out there? We have a few. You horse owners, excellent. When I, was, when I was young, I had always hoped that I could own a horse. So we also have a number of veterinarians that work with our livestock species. Livestock are animals like cattle, sheep, goats, or pigs, animals that might traditionally um, be different food sources in our food production systems. Veterinarians that work with these animals spend time uh, vaccinating them, um, providing routine medical care, and developing disease prevention programs. We also have another large group of veterinarians who work with uh, both captive and wild exotic animals, uh, both domestically and abroad, working on um, uh, wildlife conservation and ecosystem health, trying to assure that we can uh, maintain healthy populations of these exotic animals. There's also another whole group of veterinarians that most people don't think about that work every day to help maintain a safe and secure food supply in the United States. Um, veterinarians are present in almost every packing house, slaughter facility throughout the country, and are heavily involved in inspection of the animals that are processed there. There's also another whole group of veterinarians who work um, in veterinary or um, veterinary-related research. 
developing diagnostic tests, vaccines, and new treatments for diseases that uh, can affect both animals as well as people. The, um, the veterinarian here on the left is wearing a, a protective suit that's required to be worn when people work in a biosafety level four facility. This is actually a picture from the facility in Geelong, Australia. It assures that the people working around these pathogens um, can do so safely. One of the things I particularly enjoy doing is um, doing veterinary volunteer work in developing countries. I've had uh, the opportunity to go to uh, Peru, uh, Guatemala, and Chile and work on uh, horses and improving the conditions and the medical care of the, both the livestock and the horses in those countries. It's a really unique opportunity to help not just the animals, um, but the people there as well. In many of these countries, horses are more than just a companion animal or an animal uh, that's used for pleasure. Uh, often in, oftentimes in the rural areas of these countries, horses are the only means of transportation these people have. It's also a means that they um, can farm and provide food, both to sell and to feed their families. So for those of you that, have, uh, that love animals, that love science, and think you might be interested in veterinary medicine as a career, um, there's a couple things that would be important to keep in mind while you're young. It's, it's very challenging to get into veterinary school. It requires a, a minimum of two years of undergraduate work. And uh, it's very competitive, so a strong academic, um, strong academic uh, focus is very important in order to be admitted to the school. There's only 28 veterinary schools in the United States, um, but if you are interested in veterinary medicine, any of the different types of careers in, careers in veterinary medicine, I would highly encourage you to pursue that. It's a very, very diverse and rewarding career. So what we'll do now is uh, Ms. Carruthers will go ahead and talk to us a little bit about the cycle of contagion or the cycle of disease spread. Okay. All right. So my job is to help prepare you somewhat for what the rest of the uh, discussion that Dr. Hollinger is going to do. So I'm really hoping that some of you will take to heart all of her information about the, what the various veterinarians do because... I'm hoping that some of you will want to become a vet because it's such a variety of different things that you can do. I'm also amazed at how many uh, preteens and teenagers are up before 11 o'clock on a Saturday. Um, I think it's great. But then again, as I've said before, extra credit is a very powerful thing. Um, and how many of you here because of extra credit? Yeah, okay, see, I know. I've been at this for 38 years. I know it's very powerful. <laughs> anyway, so what I want to talk to you about is getting sick or not getting sick. And so we have what's known as this cycle of contagion. And you can see that it involves several different um, parts and processes. How many of you have had that horrible flu that's been out and around lately? Okay, and it seems to be continuing. I know some of my classes are somewhat empty. Um, and so I hear a few coughing and sneezing here, so keep those germs to yourself. You will definitely after what you see here today. Um, so I also wanted you to think about a question is, why are some of you sick and why are others not sick? And so those are two good questions that I want to pursue. You can go to the next one then. All right, so what the cycle, as you saw before, and you guys, and I'm very cognizant of the fact that you, many of you extra credit folks have to turn something in, so I know you need to answer questions, so I'll make sure I point to things when... It has a question that's uh, relevant. But um, the cycle of contagion does include pathogens and so on. And so what we want to look at is this 
uh, what is a pathogen. And it says here that pathogens are virus and bacteria, but there's more than that. There are prions, there are um, parasites, there's also fungi. And each pathogen is infectious in some way or another. Um, the one thing that I know that you need to know, according to our state standards, at some point in time, is the difference between a bacteria and a virus. And so I'll keep it real simple. Bacteria are living cells. Bacteria, as well, um, can metabolize food. They can reproduce inside or outside of a host. And in terms of bacteria, some of them are good and some of them are not so good. Uh, for instance, some of the good ones are things such as probiotics. Anybody ever heard of probiotics? Okay, things in yogurt, for instance. Now, have you heard about them? Okay, you, Activia or some of those that are advertised on television. Probiotics uh, help your intestinal uh, system and so on. There's another uh, good bacteria in your intestines. Um, they're all on its own. And without it, we wouldn't be able to produce vitamin K, which is necessary for blood clotting. So there are some good bacteria. There's also some that are not so good, and we call those not-so-good ones pathogenic. Um, and then viruses. Viruses are just pretty much the opposite of your bacteria. They are not living cells. They require a host in order to reproduce, and they're pretty much basically all bad. There are some that are being bad ones that were being turned around and made good by using them for some diagnostic purposes, but generally they're going to be out there to make you sick. Um, as far as uh, the cycle goes, though, a pathogen needs to find what's known as a susceptible host. And a susceptible host means that that host, that person or animal um, or thing, um, has not been exposed to the microbes before, nor have they been vaccinated against them. So they don't have any antibodies against it. And so therefore, when a susceptible host happens to encounter that pathogen, it can go in two different pathways. It can go into what we call colonization. And colonization means that you have it, but you're asymptomatic, which that means is you don't have the sneezing and coughing or worse. Um, whereas if you do get into the infection stage, and by the way, colonization can be what we call a precursor to infection. That means that it can lead to it, and most of the time does. Um, and infection, it means that you do have the symptoms then. So you've got those symptoms, and if you've had this flu, then you know exactly what we're talking about here as far as symptoms go. So let's go ahead and go to the next slide. Okay, so in this next one, we talk about transmission. And we call these modes of transmission. So in the modes of transmission, we've got contact, which can be direct or indirect. And Dr. Hollinger's already mentioned, and it was in our quiz about a fomite. Um, so direct contact means that you do just that. You have some direct contact with some type of secretion from the uh, infected person. For instance, um, mononucleosis. How many of you have heard of mono? Yeah, if you're not a teenager, you haven't heard about it, or even post-teen, I'm sure you've heard of mono. It, um, mononucleosis is one of those uh, caused by direct contact, and that would be through the secretion uh, saliva and so-called, that's why they call it a kissing disease. Um, an indirect contact would be coming in contact with um, an inanimate object, such as uh, a pen, a pencil, a piece of paper, something of that sort. So for instance, I'm sure very few of you pay real close attention to when you're doing your classwork or your homework, but you scratch your head, you know, you scrub your nose, you rub your eyes, you cough, <clears throat> you sneeze, and then you hand that paper to your teacher. Okay. How many teachers in the audience? Any of you? Okay, you know what I'm talking about. 
All right, so you hand that, to, and that's the way many flus and colds are transmitted. You know, can I borrow a pencil? I've already coughed on it, but just ignore that. Um, so that's an indirect contact. And then droplet, um, that would be through sneezing and coughing. And by the way, a sneeze covers a lot of territory. Uh, a sneeze, a really healthy sneeze, can cover about 100 miles in an hour, if you think of those droplets spreading out, such as this. And so that's just barely out of the nose. Now, if you're one of those sneezes, sneezers who do the well, okay, so you don't fall into that category. But <laughs> still, you know, you need to have a healthy sneeze. Um, and so then we have airborne. Now, airborne might surprise you. Yes, sneezes and coughs do get airborne. But strictly speaking, airborne is more related to um, particles, infectious particles traveling, piggybacking on dust particles. So, for instance, the hantavirus, if any of you have ever heard of it, it had an outbreak a while back in, um, you know, up in the Tahoe area, around Lake Tahoe, Donner Lake, and so on. And the hantavirus then get, is, infects deer, um, it infects rodents. And so what happens is it gets into their, their urine and their feces, and then that, of course, dries, flakes, powders, and then gets off into the air. So that's strictly an airborne that way. Um, a while back, we had an incident of tuberculosis on an airplane. Uh, a couple of different infected people, you know, traveled that way, and, and tuberculosis can just come out of breathing. And so that's why it was such a big deal to get all of those people on the plane, um, first of all, to survey them to see if they had been immunized, had their TB you know, immunizations up to date, and if they following them and tracking them to see if they have any symptoms. So airborne can be pretty tricky. And then, of course, there's these vectors, uh, insects or animals, and that came up on the quiz as well. Um, with insects, you've all heard about malaria, right? Maybe um, the Rocky Mountain spotted fever. fever, the ticks and all, and Lyme's disease. And animals, of course, uh, rabies is the one that gets a lot of um, attention. So... Those are modes of transmission. Now, I know that many of you walked through the door today and you were probably carrying some organisms with you. Um, in fact, I know some of you are because I infected an inanimate object. What would that be? A fomite. Okay, I infected an inanimate object that all of you have touched today. And what did I infect it with? Well, it's called glow germ. Anybody ever heard of glow germ? Glow germ is a powder that's been made luminescent so that we can teach people about good hand washing and how diseases spread. So some of you have glow germ on you. So if I can get my ushers to do their thing and the house lights to come down, what we're looking for, we're going to have a black light, and we're going to bring it up on your hands and so on. So um, the ushers are going to come along to see if you got one of my infected handouts, Okay. Since <laughs> some, you're trying to figure out, what did we all touch today? You touched a handout, okay? Now, not all of the handouts were infected, so we're, we're hoping that the uh, camera can pick up some of you with glowing little spots. We got one over there, okay? Okay, hold up your hands and hold the light behind it, or up above it. Hard to see, there's a lot of light on that one over there. Can we, well, it'll show up on the screen up here. There we go. You guys see some white spots? <laughs> and on the paper? Uh, 
All right, if some of you were wondering why you were directed to the center section, it was because we made sure that some of those were pretty well doctored. Um, so anyway, it's very easy to spread um, an infectious agent. So like I was mentioning before, if that were a cough or a sneeze, then some of you might have gotten a pretty fresh dose of it. So that's just using Glowgerm, and that just shows you a little bit about disease transmission. Okay, we'll go ahead and go to the next slide. Okay, so you have, uh, on your handout, you have something to kind of figure out. So let's say we want to stop this the cycle of contagion, because modes of transmission are really pretty easy. There's, you know, the, the ones that we basically just went through. And so any place you see this red, it tells us these are ways and places that we can stop the spread of contagion. And so what we have here is immunization or chemoprophylaxis. Uh, that means that, for instance, using a chemical, like if you didn't want to get malaria uh, from a mosquito bite or you didn't want insect bites that could possibly lead to other things or uh, flea bites, et cetera, because, you know, bubonic plague car was carried by fleas and so on, you could put on some type of um, a spray that would be, you know, a, a repellent that would keep the insects off. Um, or you can, of course, get your shots, uh, get immunization. Um, so in between the pathogen and the, and the person, the susceptible person, and this could be an animal as well, a host. So we want to take care of our pets as well in terms of their immunizations and, and uh, flea collars or uh, heartworm things, et cetera, all those things. Um, and over here, you can see that afterwards, if a person has been infected, we can immunize and we can still use the, key, the chemical treatment. And then in between colonization, we can, of course, treat the person. We can give them medicines. Now, if it's a virus, antibiotics don't work because viruses are not really alive. And antibiotics, anti-against bio-life, so antibiotics work well against the um, bacterial infections and some of the uh, fungal and also some parasites. Um, but that can put a, a, a stop here. And then, of course, we can do something like just good old ordinary good hygiene, hand washing and, uh, you know, not coughing on anybody else, not sneezing on anyone else and so on. And so it's really easy to stop it because if you think about it, all we really need is one of these and we've stopped the spread anywhere along before we get back to pathogen in this cycle. So take one out, one of those steps out, and it drops dead, the cycle does. So I've got some volunteers, and I think sure. they must be behind me. Come on out. And we're going to do a little hand-washing demonstration here. Um, what I'm going to do is really doctor them up with glow germ, okay? And so let me just move some of this stuff out of the way. There's a towel for each one of you, and I've got some soap and so on. And then I have my trusty glow germ, okay? So we <laughs> so want to make sure everyone knows that this glow germ is completely harmless. Yeah, I, and I was, I was going to tell you that. I mean, if, I wouldn't put it on my face if not. Um, and I've been breathing it in all day. So it, it's just a powder that has been made luminescent, and it has no toxic effects at all. Otherwise, Livermore Labs would definitely not let us use it. All right, so I need my volunteers to put their hands in the right spot right here so the camera. Remember, you're going to be both hands, okay? And you're going to rub those hands together front and back so you really get those germs spread all over the place, okay? And then we're <laughs> And I need one of you to shake hands with Dr. Hollinger and see if we can spread it to her. Okay, okay, both. Oh, we're going to get a double dose. And she's going to put a little on her face. So now I need the lights to come down here so that we can see how Dr. Hollinger's doing. All right, so let me get over here so we can focus on her with the camera. And yes, indeed, she's glowing. See all that? 
Wee, she got a good dose. Let's check her face. Let's get the camera up there to check her face. <laughs> now, had that been her mouth, our nose, or eyes, or ears, woohoo, she'd be really going. All right, and so now let's check your hands before we wash them. Oh my, yes. All right, and let's see yours. Okay. All right, we've got good... Dirty hands. Good dirty hands. <laughs> this is a good time to have the dirty hands. All right, so now I'm going to give each one of them a little bit of soap, okay? And I want you to do what you would normally do to wash your hands. If you're one of those who just, you know, it's like under the tap and out the door, then do that, okay? Um, I am going to rinse you off so that you guys can get in here. So really scrub up and then hold your hands over the bucket. And then I'll give you a rinse, and then we have the towels for each one of you here. Okay, you ready? All right, so you can go ahead and rub them together as I rinse you to get all the soap off. You can go ahead and rub. Okay. Because that soap's going to be sticky. Here's your towel, and we'll check you afterwards. Okay, rub them together there. Would you like to wash yours too? Okay. <laughs> Are you okay? <laughs> all right. Okay, so now let's bring the house lights down again, and let's see how good a job we did. Okay, all right. Okay, so go ahead and point those at the camera. Okay, the hands look pretty good. I see one little glowy dot. Let's see if I can get my hands out of the way. Turn them more towards the camera over here. There's, yeah. Okay, so here we have. All right, uh, hands not too bad. We got a couple glowing. The wrist, well, and the arms. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's see this one. Not too bad. Let's turn it over and check the nails because... Those are always good. Oh, okay. Oh. All right. Let's see yours. <laughs> okay. Oh, we still have some glowing there. i turn them over. Let's check your nails. Oh, not too bad on the nails. That's pretty good. Okay. All right. So anyway, as Dr. Hellinger is going to remind all of us, it only takes one particle to be left. And that one particle then can go ahead and colonize and then reproduce, and here we go again, right? So I want to thank my volunteers. You guys get these wonderful science slinkies, all right? And my volunteers were Justin and, is it Sharanaya? Sharana, okay, Sharana, thank you very much. All right, big hand for the volunteers. All right. Okay, so now we know a little bit about how to stop the the disease transmission. And we can go ahead and go to my last slide here. So our second to last. Hunting the microbes then. Well, you know, detection is not always just as simple as a black light. Um, and Dr. Hellinger is going to talk to us about finding microbes. And, you know, detection is part of the, the issue. We can find them, and then if they have mutated and changed, then we have to go find them again. And once we find them, we might possibly be able to make an immunization. We might possibly be able to make some other mechanism that will block their cycle of contagion. And then if they mutate again, then we have to go look again. So we are constantly going to be looking for um, the various microorganisms that could infect hosts. I thought this little cartoon was pretty good. So we're constantly chasing the microbes. Obviously, there's some that have been captured, and then others are still out there. And then my last slide. Thanks. All right, so as I've said, thanks to microbe hunters like um, uh, Dr. Hellinger, um, we are generally able to keep up with the microbes. We have a fantastic immune system, 
and I, this may seem very fantastical, but when uh, I've attended many lectures with uh, uh, microbiologists and virologists, and they tell us that our immune system is actually equipped for even the microbes that haven't evolved yet. We might get a little sick, but usually we conquer them unless we have a compromised immune system. We generally can ultimately uh, get ahead of them, but we do need more young micro hum hunters. Microbe hunters. So if any of you think what Dr. Hollinger does is exciting, and you obviously you're good science students, you know, keep it up, because all it takes is a question, and then you be the discoverer of that answer. So I want to, again, congratulate you guys for listening, and you're going to learn a lot more from Dr. Hollinger here now. All right. Thanks. Thank you very much. So I hope that some of you are wondering now what a veterinarian might do at a national security lab. Um, I certainly, when I started um, my veterinary career, never imagined um, I would end up working at a, an institution like uh, Lawrence Livermore. I originally um, started out in practice, in private practice, up in the Petaluma area. I worked in a large animal uh, only practice, worked on dairy cattle, horses, sheep, goats, pigs, and llamas, a lot of 4-H and FFA animals up in that area. Um, but after that, I decided I wanted a little extra training in internal medicine. I came back and I worked at UC Davis for a number of years and eventually developed an interest in veterinary epidemiology, which is the study of disease and how it impacts animals. So after working um, at the university, I worked for the State Department of Agriculture. I've always really enjoyed working with cattle, um, and I've been now working at the lab for about two and a half years. At the, the lab, we don't really have any cows, um, but we have some really smart scientists. And, and all of the projects that we work on are um, completed by large multidisciplinary teams. So it's not just a veterinarian that's involved in doing this work. There's many other smart scientists, computer scientists, um, people that work in bioinformatics, and many other areas that allow these projects to be successful. The two main areas that we focus on, though, in food and ag security have to do with uh, developing computer disease models as well as developing new diagnostic tests. Um, the main diseases that we focus on currently are foot and mouth disease, um, and I'll tell you a little bit more about why I'm so passionate about that uh, in a few slides, as well as a highly pathogenic avian influenza. On the modeling side, um, we also work with a disease called classical swine fever, and exotic Newcastle disease. And I don't know how many of you remember, but back in 2002, there was a very large outbreak of exotic Newcastle disease in Southern California, uh, which resulted in close to 5 million birds having to be destroyed. It was a very, very tragic event. So why is protecting the nation's food supply so important? It seems like a, a silly question, um, but we're very, very lucky in this country that every day uh, we, we get to get up and we, by and large, most of us eat three meals a day, and we don't have to think about the safety or security of the food that we eat. But that's not by accident. That's because there's a lot of people working every hard very day, every day to make sure that our food supply is safe. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that around the world, you know, there's a lot of people that are not as fortunate as we are here in the U.S. The World Health Organization estimates that a third of the world is well-fed, like we are here in the U.S., a third of the world is underfed, and a third of the world is starving, essentially. And every year, 12 million people around the world die of starvation because they don't have enough to eat. So just you know, take a minute every now and then and think about how lucky we are to be in this country and have a safe and secure 
food supply to rely upon. So the reason that um, I'm interested in working in food and ag security um, stems from some personal experience that I had working on the foot and mouth disease outbreak in the United Kingdom back in 2001. Um, I was one of about 300 veterinarians from the United States who was sent over there to help with the disease eradication efforts. And it was a, um, an amazing experience um, that will stay with me for the rest of my life. I could have never imagined that a disease like foot and mouth disease could have caused so much havoc, so much devastation to either people or animals in a developed country. There were on order of 10 million animals that had to be destroyed as a result of this epidemic. So why is foot and mouth disease a national security issue? Well, it's because it could, it could threaten not just our food supply if enough animals were impacted, but it also severely impacts the people and the local economies in the regions where these diseases exist. Um, you'll see the worldly cow up here on the left. And it's important to realize that in the U.S. we're very fortunate to be free of foot and mouth disease. So North and Central America, as well as Europe, Australia, and down here in New Zealand, are some of the very few, well, maybe 50% of the world is free of foot and mouth disease. The rest of the world, South America, Africa, and uh, Asia, has, have foot, to deal with foot and mouth disease on a daily basis. It's an endemic disease. It causes, they um, can vaccinate to reduce the severity of the clinical signs, but it really impacts their livelihoods and their ability to produce food. Um, the picture in the center is from the last outbreak of foot and mouth disease that happened in the United States. It was actually back in 1929, and it actually started here in Alameda County. Um, it, was, it was very devastating in those times, but certainly if we had this disease enter this country now, either unintentionally or intentionally, the consequences could be much worse. The disease itself causes vesicles or blisters to form in the animal's mouths and on their tongue and on their feet. And when those vesicles rupture, um, they cause a lot of irritation and pain, which leads to one of the very common clinical signs or symptoms of foot and mouth disease, which is heavy salivation. So as I mentioned before, this disease can be very, very devastating. Um, in the United Kingdom, the outbreak in 2001 uh, was estimated to cost over $30 billion, um, both in direct and indirect costs in the British economy. Um, but I would argue that some of the greatest costs, the impacts of this disease on the people and the farmers that were infected, I'm sorry, affected, um, can't be measured. The, the family down in the bottom right-hand corner, the Usins were one of the families that I worked with when I was there in 2001. They were fifth-generation milking shorthorn farmers that lost everything, and, and they weren't the only ones. In the end, there were 10,000 farming families that lost all their animals as a result of controlling that outbreak. So having seen that and the devastation it cost, um, I really became motivated when I came home to try to work on making sure that if this disease you know, ever came to the United States, that it wouldn't impact us in such a severe way, and that hopefully the work that we do here can benefit other countries, both developing and developed, that have to deal with this, this disease. So just so you can understand a little bit more about the disease itself, you know, it, it usually starts with, um, I mentioned, vesicles that rupture into ulcers. The animals drool. Their feet get very painful. Their feet are painful because they get um, really severe vesicles that rupture into ulcers in between the, their hooves. You can imagine how you wouldn't want to walk on that. 
Uh, also, in their mouths, they get very severe vesicles and oral ulceration. It makes it very, very painful to eat. Um, when the disease is early, it causes just a small vesicle or a blister, but then that, that blister will grow to encompass the entire surface of the tongue. And actually, in many cases, the animals slough or lose the skin off the entire surface of their tongue that has to regrow um, as they try to heal from the disease. So when this disease enters a country that's free of the disease, the normal method of disease control is to try to destroy all the infected or exposed animals to try to reduce the amount of virus that's, that's around to spread to other animals. So in the UK, um, there were on the order of uh, about 10 million animals, sheep, cattle, and some pigs that had to be humanely euthanized to control disease. Again, this is something that you know, I would never want to see happen anywhere, um, most certainly not here. So one of my favorite sayings is, the greatest tragedy is one that no one learns from and no one remembers. So in order, when I came back, to, um, to work on helping create better tools and technologies to deal with diseases like foot and mouth disease, foot and mouth disease specifically, one of the really important things that I came to realize was how important it is to understand the interaction between a disease, a virus, or bacteria, the host it might infect, be it a person or an animal, and the environment. And uh, Ms. Carruthers already talked to us a little bit about the cycle of contagion, which focuses on the interaction between the host and the agent. Um, in many cases, with a lot of these uh, agricultural diseases, the environment becomes a very important factor because um, just simple things like mud uh, on people's shoes and on vehicles and equipment can um, contribute significantly to disease spread. So when you get the wrong combination of virus or agent, host, and the environment, then we get disease. And that's what we want to understand so that we can prevent it. I think another really important thing to understand is how many of the diseases that we deal with in this world are zoonotic. You remember that was one of the quiz questions. And zoonotic disease means a disease that's shared between people and animals. Over 70% of the diseases that we deal with in the world are zoonotic, things that can be shared between um, people and animals. And so in many cases, veterinarians and veterinary researchers who are working on animal diseases are also at the same time working on human diseases because they're, they essentially can infect both humans and people. Some examples of maybe common zoonotic diseases that you might have heard about would be uh, avian influenza, West Nile virus, Lyme's disease, um, BSE is bovine spongiform encephalopathy or mad cow disease, SARS, um, I could go on and on and on. All very interesting and fascinating diseases. I will make the point that uh, foot and mouth disease is not a zoonotic disease, so it does not infect people, um, which is probably one of the good things about it. So the second thing you need to understand is how disease spreads. If you want to um, make sure that, that you can prevent disease from spreading uh, once an outbreak occurs. And as we heard before, disease can spread either by direct contact, that's an animal to animal or human to human transmission, or disease can spread on an inanimate object or fomite, which was another one of the quiz questions. So fomites can be things like a boot, and this is the underside of a boot that you can see has some mud kind of caked in the, the creases and crevices. Uh, it could be mud caked on the tire of a vehicle that's come out of a muddy field or off a muddy road. This is actually a picture from the United Kingdom in 2001, and one of the ways disease spread there was these silage wagons going in and out of wet fields and then dragging infected mud from farm to farm. 
I think maybe if any of you have traveled internationally, you've come back, uh, back to the United States, you probably remember a questionnaire that you have to fill out. One of the questions on that questionnaire is whether or not you've been on a farm or a ranch in a foreign country. You know, people aren't asking you that because they, they want to be nosy about your business. They're asking you that because they want to make sure you're not coming back from a country, um, maybe a country in South America, Africa, or Asia, that actually has foot and mouth disease, and you could potentially be carrying that disease back in the United States. So it's really important to be honest and, and let people know where you're coming from and what you've done to make sure you don't in, inadvertently bring back a disease like this because the ramifications could be really very, very devastating. So when we study diseases right, um, at the lab, we, um, we're really lucky there. We have incredible supercomputers. Um, there are some major components to these disease models. One is the premises themselves and the animals, how many of what species are where. In the U.S., we have 1.2 million livestock facilities or farms that potentially could be involved in an outbreak or, that we study when we, when we uh, do disease transmission via um, computer models. We then have to link these farms together via direct contacts, so that's animal shipments, indirect contacts, things like uh, milk tankers that go from farm to farm, or things like hoof trimmers. This, this is a person here trimming a cow's, uh, some cow's feet. Things like veterinarians um, or service technicians that go from farm to ranch to, uh, to another farm or ranch. We then have to understand the disease and how the disease evolves within an individual animal as well as within a herd or a flock. And it's different for each species. It's different for pigs and different for cattle. It's different for sheep. Um, then finally, we have to understand the countermeasures or the control measures that might be put into place to control an outbreak. Things like quarantine, uh, preventing animals from moving, or using countermeasures like new vaccines or uh, different kinds of chemoprophylaxis to control disease spread. And then in the big picture, what we look at is minimizing economic impact both to those farmers and ranchers that are infected, as well as to the other um, types of, the other pieces of our economy that are impacted indirectly. So I'll, I'll show you an example of one of the um, computer models. Can anyone see my little arrow on the screen there? start at the beginning. So what this is, is this is just an example of one simulation, um, one outbreak, in this case, that starts in Nebraska. Um, what you see is the disease spreading from county to county. Um, what the model really tracks is disease spreading from premise to premise or farm to farm. But it, it gives you an idea of how quickly a disease, this is foot and mouth disease in particular, can spread when there's no control measures in place, which is the case here. We then rerun this simulation time and time again, looking at different types of control measures and control strategies, and try to figure out, based on what part of the country it comes in, what types of animals it's infecting, what would be the most efficient and effective way to mitigate or control the, um, the spread of disease uh, during the outbreak. That, that information is then used to inform uh, policy and planning decisions um, and contingency plans.
All right, so the other area that we focus on is developing new diagnostic tests. Um, we, it's very, very important if we get foot and mouth disease in this country that we find the first case as soon as possible. Um, it's very important that we can correctly diagnose animals and make sure that we're not destroying animals that might look like they have foot and mouth disease, but that aren't truly infected. So these six pictures show the mouths of different sheep, some of which have lesions or clinical signs caused by foot and mouth disease um, that were taken in the UK. Two of these pictures show lesions or clinical signs in the mouths of animals that are caused by something else. Um, in one case, just trauma, and in the other case, a different disease that's not, uh, as, not a problem like foot and mouth disease. Um, the take-home message is that you know, any, the best trained veterinarian in the world looking at all these sheep mouths can't tell you which animal is which. And so uh, one, this is one of the reasons that we need to develop better diagnostic tests so that the veterinary diagnosticians who are sent into the field to help control these diseases can make the right decisions about which animals need to be destroyed and to make sure that we're not destroying uninfected animals unnecessarily. The other thing we need to do is find the first case first. And so we do a lot of animal disease testing in this country every day for what we call endemic diseases, diseases that affect our cattle that are more commonly found in the United States. Some of those diseases look just like foot and mouth disease. And there's a concern that because we get accustomed to seeing the same disease over and over, like uh, BVD, that we might miss the first case of foot and mouth disease because it looks so much like BVD. So one of the really neat technologies that we've been working on developing at the lab is a test that can test for all these different diseases simultaneously at the same time. So if a sample came to the lab for BVD testing, we can actually run this test on it, which tests for eight different diseases, including BVD, and gives us extra information about what might be effect affecting that animal. It allows us, um, in a very cost-effective and quick way, to um, have a rapid screening or surveillance for some of the diseases that might be less common, but if they came in, could cause great harm. So the technology behind this um, is a bead-based assay. Um, and so what happens is um, we can take a swab sample or a Q-tip from an animal's mouth, put it in um, to a very small vial, we then, in that vial, there's a, a mixture of a number of different polystyrene beads. Um, these beads, each one of these groups of beads are testing for a unique disease agent. Could be FMD, could be BVD, uh, could be blue tongue. So when the beads are mixed with the sample, um, they have antibodies, which you'll see in a second, or tags that can grab the disease agent. If the, any of the disease agents that the assay is uh, developed to target are there, then a reaction can occur that will allow the bead to bind the antigen. So we'll see that. So this is a close-up of the surface of the bead, and it shows, in this case, an antibody on the bead that's looking for target. It could be disease A, disease B. And in our case, we have eight different beads um, that are looking for eight different things. So if the, um, the agent or the disease is present, then it will bind to one of the antibodies, such as shown on the close-up of this bead. And then that, then a second 
um, fluorescent dye is added. And if the disease agent is present, then the fluorescent agent will be present and can be detected. So the beauty of this is that um, in a 96-well plate format, um, in a very small sample vial, you can take one sample and very rapidly screen it for all these different agents. Um, the reaction is read in a machine called a, a bioplex. It takes 30 seconds to screen one sample. It counts thousands and thousands of beads in that period of time. Those beads are um, pulled past a laser, two lasers, in, in fact. One laser intercalates the bead and determines what kind of bead it is. Is it an FMD bead, foot and mouth disease bead? Is it a blue tongue bead? And then the second one says, is it glowing? Is it fluorescing? Has it bound target? And so by using both of those pieces of information, you can find, actually, find out actually what, which diseases, one or many, are in that sample. So one of the other things we're doing um, is we're developing also pen side tests. The tests that can be taken into the field that can target one specific disease agent, in this case, foot and mouth disease. So this is just an example of what a device like that might look like. And Ms. Carruthers is going to show us um, just a little demonstration of, of how uh, a test like that might work in the field. So we don't actually have a foot and mouth disease test here, and we can't use a real blood on stage. So it's a little bit of a um, Betty Crocker version of uh, what would happen in the real yeah. world. Okay, so what I have, this, actually this, let me hold it here for the camera to see it. I, this is an actual um, total cholesterol test that you can order online and have delivered to your home. And if you can uh, do it, you poke your finger with a, um, a lancet and you drop just a small drop of blood in this well right there. And then um, it will eventually read how much cholesterol you have because there are, um, there's a strip right here inside that has reagents in it. A reagent is, I tell my students in the younger uh, grades that it's, reagents are kind of like eyeballs. They're out there looking for something. And when it finds it, it turns, a, in this case, it will turn a color. And according to the color you get, which would be violet or purple, it can read how much cholesterol you have. So the way it would work, if this were the blood, this is actually red food coloring dye. We're doing it the Rachel Ray, um, for you younger folks, and it would be the Julia Child for you older folks method. So what I'm going to do is show you how the test would be set up, and then pull it out here, and that allows it to go down and through a small capillary tube, and then it will be uh, read whether or not this, the sample in this OK button here whether or not it has gone through. And then it takes about 12 minutes for the test to be done. Um, so Julia Child, Rachel Ray, Rachel Ray pops something in the oven, and 30 seconds later, out comes a roast. Um, that doesn't happen in real life, boys and girls. Um, so anyway, the end product would look somewhat like this. I think you can see at about the 40, the color changes to kind of a purple. Can you see that? It goes from red to purple. Is that visible from where you are? So what Dr. Hollinger is hoping is that we can get a field test that she can hand, you know, that can be given to farmers and they can go out and uh, when the herd's eating, I suppose, they can test them all and find out if, um, you know, quickly whether or not FMD is present. So diagnostic tests are wonderful. They've come a long way. So this is something we really hope happens.
All right, so we want to thank you all very much for your attention. Um, we hope you learned some information today about diseases and how they spread. I know that many of you want to take off, but if anybody has questions, they're welcome to come down to the front, and we'd be happy to, to give, try to answer your questions. So thanks very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.